0: Lord Jesus, you said that you have come that we might have life and have it to the full. And as we have been singing the song, as we see from Scripture, the way that we obtain that life is to trust you, to obey you, to follow you. And we know in this world there are many things that can pull our eyes off of you. And I pray that now as we open your word, uh, that you will remind us, Lord, refresh our vision, refresh our memories, refresh our hearts and our minds on how we can grow as followers of yours, that we may experience the true, meaningful life that you offer to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. may be seated. I believe that one of the things that resonates deeply in the heart of practically every human being is the desire to live a meaningful life. A life that's characterized by a sense of purpose and fulfillment, a life that leaves a lasting legacy after a time on this earth is done, a life that is even a blessing to others, a life that causes us to enjoy getting up in the morning rather than dreading when that alarm clock goes off. But in reality, we don't always live a meaningful life as much as we want to. Uh, I recently, or actually a couple years ago, I came across a cartoon of a woman awakening her husband for the day. And she said to him, Harvey, dear, it's 7 o'clock. Time to get up and go through the motions. Now, you hear that and you think, who would ever want to get up and go through the motions? I don't think any of us would. But when we really examine our lives and the way we go about our lives, oftentimes we do find ourselves going through the motions. Going through the motions is when we are going through the routines and the rituals of life, but our heart isn't really fully engaged, or we aren't really considering the significance of what we're doing. It's easy, for instance, to go to school but go through the motions of the classes. It's easy to go to work and go through the motions of the things we need to do, but our heart isn't that engaged in it. It's easy to be with our family and just be going through the motions of caring for children or of eating meals or, or of just spending time together, but not really be fully engaged in it. Maybe our heart is elsewhere. Or maybe it's even coming to church. It is incredibly easy to go through the motions of doing church. I mean, we know the routine. We all probably did some form of that routine this morning of your alarm goes off, and you get up and get ready for church. You come here, you sing some songs, and uh, after um, a little over an hour, you leave. Maybe you get some hot ham. But even still, it's so easy to go through the motions of doing church, of going to work, uh, go through the motions of school, of family life, of practically anything else. Sometimes, for many of us, the only thing that breaks up the monotony of going through the motions of life is the recreation time whether it is going to the cabin up north or, or going fishing or, or, or anything else that we may do, reading, hanging out with friends. Those things may break up the routine, but it's easy to go through the motions. But again, I think that at the heart of hearts in each one of us, somewhere in there is a desire to live a life that is truly meaningful, that makes a difference. And that's what we're talking about today. And we're specifically, out of James chapter 4, going to talk about two different paths ...that people often pursue in trying to gain meaning in their life. These are two paths that really when you boil down all the different pursuits that people have... ...I think oftentimes it really boils down to just two different options. And we're going to be talking about that today. I invite you to turn your Bibles to James 4. If you didn't bring a Bible with you but would like to follow along... ...there are Bibles in the, in the pews or the chairs in front of you. Uh, we're at the end of James chapter 4. And we're also near the end of our Follower Apps series. Follower Apps is all about applications that we can make to our lives to help us to grow as followers of Jesus. After today, we have three more messages out of James chapter 5, and then we're going to be moving on to a new series, which you'll be hearing about soon. Uh, but today we're talking about those two different paths that are so easy to take. Uh, well, one, one is easy and common. The other is not quite as easy, not quite as common, but it's actually the path that does lead to that true, meaningful, lasting life. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read this passage. It's James four thirteen through 17. I'm going to be reading Uh, Beginning in James 4, verse 13, where James says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone, then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now, this is fairly classic James' style here. He doesn't pull any punches, he doesn't sugarcoat things. He just lays things right out there. But he starts out, um, or really the main theme here is what I would call the follower's heart cry the heart cry of a true follower's heart, which is saying, Not my will, but God's will. It's really the theme of what James is saying here. He's laying out a contrast where it's easy to want to follow our own personal will in our lives. But instead, a true follower of Christ will say, you know what? It's not about my will, it's about God's will. And Jesus is the model that we ought to follow in this. Because you think most specifically of Jesus' final night on earth in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a garden of olives. He was out there praying to God, uh, preparing for his crucifixion the next day. And he was saying, Father, if there's any way, Let this cup be taken from me. This cup is referring to the cup of God's wrath that was going to be poured out on Jesus when he died on the cross to pay for our sins. He says, If there's any way possible, let this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is our model in this. And Jesus' uh, whole life was characterized by following God's will and not just his own personal selfish will. In fact, we see, uh, for instance, in John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food... It's to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus' entire life was characterized by doing the will of his heavenly father. And he calls us to have that same mentality. Not our will, but his will. We see, uh, for instance, when, in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus calls people to come follow him, he says, if anyone would come follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You hear that? It's a call to give up our own will, to surrender to God, And to live for God's will rather than our own personal will. So the heart cry of a follower of Christ will say, not my will, but God's will. And we're going to look at the contrast between the two of those. First of all, we're going to see the emptiness of asserting our own personal will. There's an emptiness associated with that. But it's a very common popular philosophy in life that we need to assert our own will if we want to get anything good out of life. It's the mentality that says, you know what, no one else is really looking out for me. No one else really knows what I really desire and what I really want. So I need to look out for myself. And I'm going to figure out what goals I have in life. I'm going to plan and be diligent um, in order to achieve those goals. That's a very common mentality in our world today, just as it was back in the world of Jesus and James. And James is addressing people with this mentality when he says, look, this is what many of you are saying. Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. We'll spend a year there. And carry on business and make money. He's talking about people who are setting out plans. Uh, They're coming up with a strategy of, okay, we're going to go here. We're going to do these things. And the outcome of it is that we're going to make money. Now you read that and you think, what's wrong with that? I mean, we all plan. In reality is it's responsible to do uh, at least some degree of planning in our lives. You don't want to live completely moment by moment or you're going to miss some significant opportunities. And There's a level of responsibility that probably won't be there. Odds are good that if we went wherever you keep your calendar, uh, whether it's on a wall at home, whether it's on your smartphone, whether it's on a pile of post-it notes just scattered around a desk or a table, Odds are good that we would find that you have plans in place of some sort, even for the coming weeks. Maybe it's a doctor's appointment. Maybe it's a work commitment. Uh, maybe it's vacation Bible school that you're planning for that you have in your calendar. We, we all make plans in our lives. So we have the question of why is James coming down so hard on people who make plans? Well, the issue is what is their attitude behind the plans that they're making? Their attitude is revealed over in verse 16. Uh, James says, as it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. He's referring to, here to the attitude that's oftentimes underlying these self centered plans. that, that it's, it's built on a lot of self confidence and our own ability to plan rather than uh, plan this bill out of dependence on God. I think that all of us can be guilty of this at times where we, we want to follow God, but at the same time, we make plans based on our own wisdom and our own desires rather than based on what God is telling us to do. Sometimes we don't even take the time to stop and seek God. I mean, this, this part of the letter is written to Christians. Yeah, I mean, he refers to them as you. I mean, they're Christians who receive this letter, but they're living as if they don't need God, at least in the way that they plan for their lives. You could call them practical atheists. They, they may come to the church on Sunday morning and worship God and say, God's great and I need God in my life. But then from Monday all the way through Saturday, they're living their lives as if they don't need God because they're making plans based on their own wisdom rather than God's wisdom. They're planning for their future based on their own confidence and their own abilities. Now again, I want to clarify that the Bible doesn't speak against planning in and of itself. You look throughout Proverbs. There are a lot of Proverbs that are about making wise plans. You look at the life of Jesus. He was definitely... Uh, in tune with God's Spirit, seeking God's will in everything he did. But you still see times where Jesus is even laying out plans. For instance, when he sent out, uh, 72 of his followers on a little bit of a short-term missions trip, he, he, was, he gave them plans as far as where to go, as far as what to do and what not to do, what, what needs to be said. So he made some plans. You look at Paul in his letters, he was definitely making plans. And Paul, you can see throughout his letters, he's talking about, okay, I'm going to go to this place, then this place, then this place. He's making plans. So there's nothing inherently wrong with plans. But the issue is our attitude as we're going about making these plans. James is addressing people who are asserting their own personal will rather than seeking and submitting to God's will. When you look at Paul and his plans, he held his plans with an open hand saying, God, if, you're gonna, if you want to interrupt my plans, so be it. That's fine. I'll follow you. And we see multiple times where Paul's plans were interrupted. And, and Paul is willing to follow God rather than his previously determined plans. In verse 14, though, James gives the ultimate reason why we can't depend only on our own ability to plan. He says, look, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may think you know, but you really don't. Uh, between services, we were having a little Bible study on the same passage. And one of the things we talked about how is, you know, practically every day, Things come along that interrupt our plans. In many ways, our lives are are simply uh, all about how do we respond to the distractions and to the changes of plans that come our way. But we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What he's referring to here could be called the brevity of life. Brevity comes from the word brief. He's talking about how incredibly brief our life on this earth is. He says, You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Yesterday, we had our annual Spring Work Day, and it was a beautiful day weather wise outside, and we had a good group of people here. We got a lot of work done, and for me, that's always very encouraging and very enjoyable. Even though you uh, are weary at the end of it, it's fun to be together accomplishing a common goal. But during our lunchtime, we we're reminiscing about last year's Spring Work Day. And how the weather was a little bit different. Because yesterday was perfectly nice and beautiful and clear. Last year, it started out very foggy. I mean, you can see that picture there. Uh, You can barely see uh, Robert and Ian in that picture because it's so foggy. And and I was just reminiscing about the fog and how it's very different than a clear day yesterday. And someone who was sitting near me said, you know, though, it was actually very nice to work uh, in that cool temperature and in the fog until the fog went away. Then it warmed up quite a bit. But the the fog went away. That's what oftentimes happens with fog. It's around for a few hours, and then the sun comes out and burns the fog off. It's here, and then it's gone. Think in the same way. You go outside on a cold winter day. You're all bundled up. But what happens as you breathe out in the cold weather? You can see your breath. It's the water vapor uh, that you're able to see. But it's not there for long. It's gone. It's the same thing if you have a frost that comes in the fall or in the spring. You see the frost out there in the morning when you wake up, but oftentimes within just an hour or two, the frost is gone. And these are the images that James is pointing to in this passage when he says that our life is but a mist or a vapor. It's here now, but it'll soon be gone. And this can be a bit discouraging for us, but it's reality and it should be a reminder for us of the fact that that life is very brief. And we can't take anything for granted. And even our plans, we need to plan very wisely and humbly in dependence on God, knowing that, you know what? God's kind of like an air traffic controller. He sees everything that's going on where, I mean, if you think about an airport with the planes flying around, you'd be very unsafe if the air traffic controller um, wasn't paying any attention and the planes all try to do their own thing. You need someone who can see the bigger picture to help things navigate safely. That's what God functions as in our lives in terms of our plans, that we're looking to Him for navigation guidance. But again, when we look at our lives, when we look at the people around us, we see signs of the brevity of life everywhere. How brief life is, how it can be taken away in just a moment. I think of a friend I had in college. Her name was Amy. Uh, She was more, we had mutual friends, so I knew Amy, I mean, decently well, not super well, but I, I knew her. In my last year of college, uh, Amy was uh, taking private pilot's lessons. Uh, She failed to uh, navigate a landing of her plane successfully. Her plane crashed. She died. I mean, it was very shocking just how in in an instant. Amy, who we knew, we called her jolly because she was always very happy. um, She was gone. I think of a good friend of one of Shelley's college, or uh, the husband of one of Shelley's good friends from college. He died a couple months ago. Of cancer. I mean, he was my age or a little bit younger. Even even for people who are able to live to an older age, you still do not know what's going to happen next. You still don't know when the end is going to come. I think of my grandfather. I was very close to him growing up. Um, In the summer after my senior year of high school, I was helping him put up um, hay bales. Uh, He had had some sicknesses. He was pretty weak. Um, But he was still able to be out and around. And after work one day that summer, I was walking the barn lot with him. And we were just talking about how, how he's getting better, but he still wishes he was able to do more. And I was just saying, Grandpa, you're getting stronger. That's encouraging. Soon you'll be able to be up and around again helping out rather than just watching me put the hay bales into the hayloft. Well, later that week, he passed away. His heart failed. I mean, you never know when your last breath is going to come. I mean, I'm, I'm 33 years old. And for many of you, you'd say, man, you're just, you're just a youngin' still. For some some others here, you'd say, wow, 33 is pretty old. Uh, It's all a matter of perspective. But it's amazing to me. I'm I'm 33. It's amazing to me to think back when I was 18 or 20. And the things that happened then, in some sense, it seems like a lot has happened since then. But on, on the other hand, it's like, man, that was just a moment ago. And I've talked to a lot of people twice my age, and they feel the same thing, that, wow, life has just flown by. Sometimes we need to be reminded of our own mortality because that can help us get a perspective on what's most important in life. I, I had a, uh, my closest call with my mortality so far last summer was my blood clot. Um, it felt like I was a walking time bomb for a few days, not knowing is that blood clot going to break loose and is that going to be my last few minutes on this earth. I didn't know. It, it was a bit scary. It was uncertain. But we all need to come to grips <clears throat> with our mortality. But I think as we do so, it helps give us perspective on what is really most important in our lives. Many of you probably know the name Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was one of the founders of Apple computers, one of the greatest innovators. If you have an iPad or iPod or iPhone or iMac or whatever i-things you have that come from Apple, uh, you are at least influenced in some way by, by what Steve Jobs did. He, well, he died relatively recently, and he was definitely not a Christian But I want to read to you something that he said in a graduation uh, message that he gave at Stanford University several years ago. He was talking about how he thinks it's very important that we as humans come face-to-face with the reality of our impending death whenever that comes, because that will help us gain perspective on the here and now. Steve Jobs said uh, to uh, these people about to graduate, he said, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. So Steve Jobs is saying that when he looks at the big decisions he has to make in life, he gains perspective by considering the fact that he won't be around forever. And that enables him to really weed out the things that aren't as important so he can vet, invest his life in the things that he deems to be most important. Now, he, he had some interesting views on God. On, on, he wasn't really sure what happens after you die. But at the same time, his perspective, up to a point, was very biblical. I think of Psalm 90, verse 12, when the psalmist said, Teach us, O Lord, to number our days aright, that we may g- gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. The context of this verse in Psalm 90 is about how brief our days on this earth really are. We're told to teach, to teach us, O Lord, to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom, that we may invest our lives in what is truly most important. Now, as I said, Steve Jobs didn't really um, have a grasp on what happens after you die in this world. He's told me that death brought perspective. But when we look at Scripture, we know that there is a God. And that there is an eternity, and that should really make a difference in how we live our lives. I think a helpful illustration uh, can be had from this broomstick. Imagine with me that this broomstick is not simply about four, four and a half feet long, but instead extends forever in that direction and infinitely far in that direction. And it represents eternity. So that's how long eternity is. It's forever in, every, in each direction, Imagine then where our life on earth would, would be represented on this long, infinite line of eternity. It would be just a little dot. To help us, I put a little dot here. How many of you can see this little dot? A decent handful of you can see it. Even if you can see that little dot, it is awfully small, even in comparison with this little broomstick here. And it's so much smaller on the line of eternity that extends forever in each direction. So the question that we need to consider is are we living for the dot or are we living for the line of eternity? If we are insistent on asserting our own selfish will and doing things our way rather than God's way, we are living for the dot. And even if we are incredibly successful on this earth in terms of making money, in terms of being influential and powerful, in terms of having a a lot of notoriety and, and popularity, even if we have those things in this world... They will die with us unless we are living for greater purpose, for the eternal perspective rather than the temporal perspective. And I think that should be kind of sobering for us and just help give us a bit of a perspective of how do we live for the line and not for the dot. John Piper is a pastor up in Minneapolis. Uh, His father was a Baptist uh, pastor as well, and his father was also a, a pretty fiery evangelist and john piper has a lot of stories from his childhood growing up with his father who's an evangelist and he tells a story of one time uh there was he was his father was preaching in his hometown if you can kind of picture the old school tent revivals that's kind of the type of thing that his father did a lot but his father was preaching in the church in his hometown and there was a man in that town who was very well known for having a very hard heart towards god people in this church had been praying for this man for many years And to the shock of everyone there in that church on that night when John Piper's father was preaching, this man who'd been very hard-hearted towards God for many years came into the church. And towards the end of the service, he walked forward during the closing hymn and started speaking with John Piper's father. John Piper's father took him by the hand uh, during that closing hymn. And as everyone was being dismissed, they sat in the front pew. And John Piper's dad shared the gospel with him. This man's heart was open to the gospel. This man responded to the gospel, this man came to f- saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now you would think that would be a very joyful thing. And I, I think it was a joyful in a sense to this man. But this, he was sitting there with John Piper's father, he was just in tears. And he said, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. What well, he's referring to is he knew that he was very near the end of his earthly life. He didn't have that many years left. And he felt like he had wasted his life. He had assurance now of eternal life. But at the same time, he felt like he had wasted so much of the opportunities that had been there for him during his earthly life. I think this is a call for us to recognize that the gospel isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not hell insurance or fire insurance or something like that that will benefit us in eternity, but not now. God is looking to work in and through us here and now. One of my favorite quotes comes from the movie Gladiator. Uh, many of you may be familiar with that movie. It came out when I was in college. Uh, the main character in the movie is named Maximus. And at one point in the movie, Maximus has a line that has deeply impacted me in terms of focusing on the eternal perspective rather than the temporal perspective. Maximus says, What you do in life echoes in eternity. What you do in life echoes in eternity. What that means is that the things that we do in our lives right now, this little dot, will create some sort of echo into eternity. The question is, what type of echo will our lives in this earth create? Will it be a hollow, empty echo? Meaning that we invested our lives in things that only matter in this world. That we lived according to our own will rather than God's will. Or will it be a deep and resounding echo indicating that we invested our lives not in things of this world primarily, but in eternity and the things that last and the things that matter to God and for eternity. That's the question for us to consider. Thankfully, James doesn't leave us alone to try to figure out how do we do that. He goes on in this passage to explain how do we live with more of that eternal perspective? How do we deprioritize our own personal will and gain greater priority on God's will? And what we see in the latter half of this passage is what could be called the eternal vision vision. Of submitting to God's will. It's eternal vision. Because it's not just a focus on what we're doing in this lifetime. It's a focus on what matters for eternity. And if we want, to, if we want our lives to matter in light of eternity. It's very important that we understand God's will. And submit to God's will. James says in verse 15. You should not just plan however you feel fit for your own life. Instead you need to say if it is the Lord's will. We will live and do this that this represents an awareness of god's control of our lives that we're saying you know what i can make plans but ultimately god's the one who's in control and i want to seek what his will is and live according to that will a part of this means uh, a part of this goes back to what it means um when we call god lord i mean it says if it is the lord's will lord is a term that means master It means that we are the servants, that we are the ones who are following someone else's leading. We aren't the ones to assert our own will. We're we're, we're called to look to the master, to the Lord, find out what he wants us to do. And what this means is that we need to hold our plans with an open hand and say, God, what is it that you want to do here? You are free to interrupt. You're free to change my plans as you see fit because I know that your will is better than my will. Like it or not, Our plans will get interrupted. The only issue is how are we going to respond to that? Will we have a soft heart to follow God's will in that time? Or will we continue to drive forward to follow our own will? I think of when Shelly and I were going through the adoption process with our son, Micaias And how the adoption process is a process where you better be holding that plan with an open hand or you're going to get awfully frustrated. And even if you are trying to submit to God's timing and God's will, it's still easy to get frustrated because... There's so much hurry up and wait in the adoption process and so many things that you think, okay, this person just needs to get this paper in at this time and then we will be moving ahead. And There are so many things that happen in the adoption process that do not happen according to our own personal timetable. But, but we look, at, look back and see that God was working things out perfectly to bring the perfect son into our lives. I mean, if, it'd been, if, if our childbearing had been according to our plan, it would have been very different but we're very thankful that God had a better plan. And we're thankful that along the way we learned, sometimes through very hard circumstances, to trust in God's way and God's will rather than our own. Or many of you are another, another example. Many of you are familiar with how uh, right now we're in the process with Ozaki Christian School. Uh, to hopefully host a preschool here in, in Friedman's building. I mean, o- OCS would be running the preschool, but it would just be hosted in one of the rooms downstairs. A relatively small affair, at least at the beginning. Uh, but we need approval from the city council in order to get the permit for them to host a school here. And we thought it was going to be a fairly easy process, and then uh, we had a city council meeting this last, uh, this last week, and we thought that, okay, we get the approval, and then they were able to start promoting it and getting enrollment and stuff. Well, there's a little bump in our plan, Uh, This last week, Uh, if you read an article in the newspaper, you saw a little bump in that plan. I don't think it's a big deal overall. I think we'll be able to get over that. But it was definitely a surprise at the council meeting to see the bump that came along. And I remember talking with Chris Austin, the main administrator at OCS, after that city council meeting. And we were just talking about how, you know what, (laughs) we had our plans. But evidently, the plans that we're called to follow now are a little bit different But as we've been reflecting on that, as I've been seeing how more things are unfolding, I'm seeing that God has a greater plan. certainly not the easiest thing. It's not according to our plan. But I believe that God is doing something here. I mean, there are some more things that need to take place behind the scenes and need to be researched before we move ahead with that plan. But it's a reminder that God's the one who's ultimately in control. And our call is to submit to His will and His plan and not our own. James closes out this passage in verse 17 by saying, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. There are a couple of parts to this. One, James is saying you need to know what is good. I think a, a, a synonym of this is saying not just knowing what is good, but you need to know what God's will is. But oftentimes we have a question in our lives of what is God's will. It's one of those classic questions that people really enjoy asking pastors uh, Is What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for me in this situation? And that is a very tricky, challenging question to ask because none of us are God. And at some point, there is a process of walking by faith, of trying to figure out the best we can, what is God's will. But then once we figure it out, walk by faith in that direction. But to help us to try to figure out what is God's will in our life, I want to give us five questions that we can ask when we're faced with a decision and we're trying to figure figure out is this god's will or not now there's a lot more to consider besides these questions and i mean these aren't necessarily absolutes that that always hold true at least one of them is but the rest may not be quite as much but they're general principles that can help us discern what god's will is in our lives here's the first question does this align with scripture Does this course I'm considering align with Scripture? This is the one absolute. If our course of action does not line line up with Scripture, we can be absolutely certain that that is not God's will. But I believe that a significant majority of God's will for our lives is already outlined right here in Scripture. Many times we don't think about it that way. We wonder, what is God's exact personal will for my life right now in the 21st century? But a lot of what God wants us to do and how He wants us to live is already here. I think about someone who may theoretically come to me and ask me, say, you know what, I'm in this conflicted relationship with someone else. What do you think God's will is for how, uh, what we do in this situation? You know what? God has already revealed a lot in Scripture about His will for how we handle conflict in our lives. And so the starting point for figuring out God's will is simply applying the principles and conflict resolution and peacemaking that He's already outlined. Or one of the other classic questions about God's will is, do you think it's God's will for me to marry this person or that person? Well, I'm pretty sure in Scripture you're not going to see anywhere where it says, um, so-and-so, I want you to marry so-and-so. I mean, if, if you're alive here in the 21st century. But you will see a lot of principles in Scripture that reveal what God's will is for the marriage relationship. For instance, one, one clear question that comes directly from Scripture is, is this person... A believer in Jesus Christ. Because if you are a believer in Christ and you're considering marrying someone who isn't, that's not right. You're not called, you're called to be equally yoked, not unequally yoked. So that's a clear picture of God's will right there in Scripture. I mean, you could also ask other questions that come from Scripture, such as, is this person growing Christ-like character? If not, there should be concern over whether this is the right person for you to marry. One other thing that you can extrapolate from Scripture, Scripture tells us that children ought to honor and respect their parents. And if the person that you're marrying has a lot of scorn or, or, or uh, resentment or just mockery and cynicism towards their parents, that should be a warning sign for you. Because very often, the way that a young person treats their parents is the way that they'll eventually treat their spouse when they're married. Maybe not right away, but at some point in the future. And so you can see there are some clear principles that we can draw from Scripture that can help us to discern God's will in our circumstances here and now. Or or another question that people ask, how does God want me to manage my money? Well, again, Scripture has a lot of principles for what God's will is for how we use our money. So we need to go to Scripture and ask, does this thing I'm considering align with Scripture? If it doesn't, we can be sure that that's our own personal will, not God's will for us. Second question when we're considering a course of action is this. What is my motivation? Is my motivation primarily self-centered in terms of feeding my pride or wanting my own pleasure or wanting fame for myself or wanting more power? Or is my motivation more about being a blessing to others, more about honoring God? Now, this isn't to say that we can't do anything in our lives that we enjoy. That's not what it's saying at all. But it is saying that if we have a tendency... In our lives, to prioritize ourselves and our own selfish motivations over what God wants, there's a problem there. So, what's our motivation? Thirdly, what are the unintended consequences of this decision? There can be a lot of good avenues and opportunities that are open to us that may seem like they're God's will for us, but when we really examine them, there may be some unintended consequences that polarize off our main priorities in life. You know, there are some certain priorities that all of us should try to live out in our lives. Things like uh, loving God faithfully and, and growing our walk with Him. Things like prioritizing and loving our family. Things like having a fruitful ministry to, whether it's in church or in our neighborhood or somewhere, that we should have, a, have some ministry going on. But if we see an opportunity that seems like a good opportunity, but it actually is going to have unintended consequences that have negative influences on some of our main priorities in life, we should seriously question if that's really God's will for us. I was faced with this question uh, a couple months ago. had an opportunity uh, to join um, the, the Wisconsin board for an organization called Gift of Adoption. Gift of Adoption is an agency that um, grants um, financial grants to families in the adoption process. It's kind of like our Forever Families ministry here at Freedoms but on a much larger scale. And Shelley and I had been acquaint- acquainted with Gift of Adoption for a couple of years. We'd been able to speak at, a, at several of their fundraising events. Uh, we got to know the CEO of the organization. And um, through her, I um, got to talk with the, the head of the board for Gift of Adoption here in Wisconsin. And he invited me to join the board um, here in Wisconsin of this organization. And at first I was thinking, man, this is a great opportunity it's an opportunity to, to further the cause of adoption. It's an opportunity to um, help families like us who have been in the adoption process. And it's also an opportunity to, to hopefully be a witness for Christ to people who need Christ because Gift of Adoption is not specifically a Christian organization. I thought, hey, working with uh, some, some of the top business people in Milwaukee and, and other parts of the state could be a great way to be a witness for Christ here. So, so I left my initial meeting uh, with this man thinking, okay, I think I'm going to do this. I just need to think and pray about it a little bit more and talk with Shelly and then I'll get back to you with a decision. Well, the next couple of weeks I began to process this thinking, you know what, it is a great opportunity. But there are some consequences if I take this position, this role, that would, that would be detrimental to some of my other main priorities in life. One thing is I don't have a ton of free time just floating around there that I can allocate all kinds of new things to. I knew that if I dedicate myself to being on the board of Gift of Adoption, it was going to take time away from probably, probably my family or possibly my ministry here at Freedon's. And I thought, oh, are those really costs that I want to bear right now, especially the family time, because the family time is already limited at times. I also realized, you know what, this is a time where I've really been planning to invest more ministry time in the Port Washington community. I mean, reaching out to people right around here, uh, building relationships with people uh, to help the gospel get out here. It's great to take the gospel to these business people and these people on this board scattered around the state, but what about my own neighborhood? If I'm not investing here, and I'm, I'm investing there, I feel like I'm neglecting a big part of my calling as a person who lives in Port Washington and is called to minister here. And so I had to make the difficult decision and say no to the opportunity to be on the board. The, the, it's, the opportunity is still out there. I mean, and the, the president of the board said, you know, I understand that this is a really hard decision for you. I respect the care that you've taken in this. And then the opportunity is still there if you ever want it. Um, but I had to say no because of the unintended consequences. There was a good opportunity to take my focus away from other more important priorities in life. So we need to consider unintended consequences as we're trying to discern God's will in our lives. Fourthly, we need to ask, how does this influence other people around me? You know, there really aren't many things that last for eternity. God is eternal. God's word is eternal. I mean, in Scripture, it appears that the angels are eternal and people are eternal. Almost everything else you see in this world besides people are not going to last forever. And this church building not going to last forever. Uh, the places where we work, our homes. I mean, we can invest a lot of time and effort into our homes and into our cars and they're making money. That stuff doesn't last forever. But people do. So we need to ask, how does this course of action I'm considering influence people, especially in light of eternity? C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and he's written a classic passage on this idea that people are eternal. I want to read it to you. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations—these are mortal, and their life is to ours as life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit—immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Then, in a different section of the same um, passage, he's talking about heaven and hell. And he says, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. And so as we're considering different courses of life, or uh, courses of action that our life could take, we need to ask, how does this influence people around me? Is this course of action going to help people grow closer to Christ? Or is it going to tarnish people's view of Christ? The final question we need to ask is, what brings the most glory to God? Our ultimate reason for living on this earth is to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Isaiah 48, uh, God says, I will not share my glory with anyone else. God wants glory for himself. And if we are going to pursue a course of action that brings glory, more glory to us or to anything on this world, there's a problem with that. Our call is to bring glory to God to God. And so we should pursue the courses of action that are going to bring the most glory to God possible. And along the way as we're trying to seek God's will for our lives it's important that we do seek out godly counsel other Christians who are mature in their walk with God who can give us their advice as well tell us if we're off base or not. And prayer is also an incredibly valuable component of seeking God's will just to, to help us directly communicate to God asking God what is it that you want for me? By the way, I encourage us to use these other questions as well And we're seeking God's will. And uh, James closes out this passage and says, once you know the good that you ought to do, you need to do it. It's not enough just to know it. You need to actually live it out. I want to close today with two questions for us as we're talking about our own mortality. uh, I want you to think about your funeral. Odds are good unless Jesus returns soon. We're all going to have a funeral at some point, whether sooner or later. Think about your funeral. I want you to think about what do you want said of you at your funeral? What do you want said of you at your own funeral? For some people, there may be things said or maybe just thought at their funeral as well. They were really devoted to their work. You know, they really didn't spend that much time with their family. uh, But they did leave a good inheritance for their children. Man, their first love was fishing. They cared more about keeping a clean house than about enjoying their children. I mean, there could be all kinds of things like that. Or the alternative is, you know, they really loved their family a lot. They deeply loved God. They were willing to follow God no matter what it cost them. Many of you uh, probably saw the Not a Fan DVDs uh, that we had going a couple months ago. Uh, Picture the last DVD there. There's Eric, a young man who's Passed away, God radically transformed his life. Think back to that funeral scene if you saw those. It's a funeral scene where you have many, many people who stand up during the course of that funeral and testify to how God worked through Eric to bless their lives. I don't know about you, but that's the type of funeral I would want. Whether people are saying that verbally or just whether God knows that, that God has worked, that he has worked through me to impact their lives. I don't want to waste my life Just focusing on things in this world, I want to invest my life in things that matter for eternity. My prayer is that everyone, all of us here, we have that same mentality. So, what do you want said of you at your funeral? The second question is, what do you want God to say to you at the great judgment? There is going to be a time when we're all standing before God in judgment. After, in that time, after our life on this earth is done, we're going to be standing before God. If our faith is in Christ, we don't have to fear condemnation. Because Christ has already paid the penalty we deserve for our sins. But we all still will be held accountable for how we steward our lives. What we do with the, with the, um, the opportunities and the gifts and the resources God has given us. So what's he going to say to us? Is he going to say, you know, you did a lot of nice things there on that earth. But it's really about you. you were trying to live out your own personal will. You, you, even as you're involved in church or in ministry, it's more about you than about me. Or is he going to say, you know, I saw that it was a struggle for you at times. But you were willing as much as you could with my grace to to deprioritize your own will so you could prioritize my will and do what I wanted you to do. Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know about you, but I I would rather have the latter. I'd rather have well done, good and faithful servant because I prioritize God's will and prioritize eternity over this lifetime. I want to close with uh, just a little rhyme of sorts that I don't know where it came from. I don't know if anyone does anymore, but I think it's very applicable in a time like this. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May we be men and women who invest our lives in the line, in eternity, and not just in a little speck that is our lives here on this earth. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it's, it's kind of uh, a bit challenging as we think about these realities of our own mortality. The fact that it's so easy to get caught up in pursuing our own selfish will rather than what you want. But I pray that you will be at work in our lives helping us to focus more and more on what matters in light of eternity rather than on our own personal selfish will. And God, now as we bring back to you a portion of the, the, the finances you've entrusted to us, we do so with a recognition that everything that we have comes from you. And so we want to do this out of a sense of gratitude and faith, understanding that everything we keep for ourselves will die with us, but everything that we give for your purposes will store up eternal treasures for us in heaven. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to invest in eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.